welcome to the 171st episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Thursday, the 20th of January, 2022, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. After a post-COVID lull, we are back and firing. This week, I'm delighted to welcome to the show Professor Helen Scott, editor of the Haymarket Books version of the Rosa Luxemburg classics, Reformer Revolution and The Mass Strike. In this episode, we discuss Reform or Revolution, Rosa's text which critiqued evolutionary socialism, the seminal revisionist work of the Dark Lord of Reform within the SPD, Edward Bernstein. Helen is currently working on Volume 5 of the complete works of Rosa Luxemburg. If you'd like to help contribute to this mammoth undertaking, you can donate at the link I've included in the show notes. This week, I have the new patron, Eurydice Nixon, to thank. If you'd like to help support the show, please head on over to the patron and throw me a few commie dollar. Okay, to the interview. Hi, Helen. Thanks very much for doing the interview today. We are just going to hopefully discuss Rosa Luxemburg's uh, Reform and Revolution. Maybe for a few of the listeners who maybe don't know who Rosa Luxemburg is or, or is was, perhaps maybe you could give us a little bio of her and what was her history. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. I'm always happy to be part of any project that involves reading more Rosa Luxemburg. She is, I think, one of the most important figures of the 20th century. Often people say she's one of the most important Marxists or one of the most important revolutionaries. And I just wouldn't even add the qualifier and just say that she's one of the most important figures of the 20th century. And she was clearly, the more you read by her and about her, you get a picture of a remarkable individual. She has all sorts of personal qualities that are very striking and admirable, but she was also very much a product of her time. And the way I often think about her is that she crystallized the best of the period that she lived through. And the period that she lived through at the turn of the 19th, 20th centuries was in many ways a terrible period. You know, it was a period of transition and upheaval that saw the transition from the remnants of feudalism and the the predatory nature of new capitalism. And she grew up in Poland. She was actually born in 1871, which I always think is perfect because it's the year of the Paris Commune, kind of set the tone for her life, which was a life of standing up against the ruling class. So she was born in Poland at a time when it was occupied by actually three empires. She was she grew up in the in the area that was occupied by the Tsarist Russian Empire, which was the most loathed and hated of them. Uh, and it really did have all of the worst elements of feudalism. There were no democratic rights. You know, you were kind of, you you were born into the position that you died in. Most people were destined to lead a life of of drudgery. At the same time, Poland was the center of a new, vibrant industrial capitalism, and people were making immense profits, and new cities and urban areas were developing very rapidly. And that meant that, you know, for the working class, 
they were living in really quite wretched conditions and they were working in terribly unsafe, dangerous, uh, kind of backbreaking conditions. Um, so that was kind of the backdrop. The capitalism that was at the time in Poland, was this like a kind of a Russian state-led capitalism or was it a kind of a, an indigenous bourgeoisie-led capitalism? There was, I mean, there was a Polish industrialist class, but the whole country was subject to Russian domination. But there was a certain kind of sense of dual systems in a way, you know, that the new industrialists had a certain kind of power by dint of their money and, and their location in this new economy that was, that was spreading throughout the world. And then there were all sorts of conflicts over the extent to which the Tsarist empire could, you know, control and determine events. So, you know, hence that kind of sense of conflict. But the, the, the good side that came out of all of this was with the development of this voracious capitalism, you also saw a new industrial working class that actually in Poland was extremely combative and militant. And with that came new organizations and particularly the, the growth, the rapid growth of socialist organization in Poland and, and elsewhere globally. And, and that, that kind of, the extent of that is something that we can only really dream of today, you know, because we're really talking about mass socialist presence in factories and mines and workplaces and an organized structural body that represented those masses. And Luxembourg spent her life really building the socialist presence in the working class movement in Poland. And then when she went into exile, she lived for a brief period in Switzerland, but then went to Germany, which is where she spent most of her active life before she was killed, murdered in 1919. There's an interesting story you have in the introduction about how she escaped from Poland, I think, to Switzerland at the time. Can you tell that one? there was a, a very elaborate plot. She was only a, a student. I mean, she got in, involved in, in the movement when she was still in high school, the, the, the school resistance movement. Um, and then she was taking part in these illegal Marxist factory groups. And the authorities were clamping down, you know, whenever they found out that somebody was involved in this, they used the full power of the law to um, lock up or deport. The authorities found out about Luxembourg and she went through this elaborate charade of pretending that she was a persecuted Christian who had to be protected. <laughs> and uh, she did actually get a priest to assist in her being smuggled out of the country. And all of this was, none of it, none of it was, was true. I mean, of course, she was Jewish. She could have actually legitimately claimed persecution as being a Jew because anti-Semitism was, was rife, of course. But yeah, and this also really set the tone for the rest of her life. I mean, she not infrequently found herself being smuggled across borders and using whatever uh, ruse and whatever kind of support she could get her hands on. She also suffered a couple of uh, physical disabilities. 
Like, how did that play into into her life? Yeah, she had. Um, this also speaks to the kind of childhood she had because she she did grow up in a a sort of solidly lower middle class family that was most of the time fairly stable compared to you know the precarious lives of most working class people. But there were times of hardship, and as I said before, she was you know obviously a part of a po- of a colonized population as being Polish and then also being Jewish subject to anti-Semitism and real discrimination against Jewish people. And then on top of that, when she was a child, she had a mistreated hip complaint. And the result of the mistreatment and the complaint itself led to a lifelong disability. And this is not incidental because she did spend her life as an advocate for the oppressed. And that comes from obviously what she saw and what she knew and her studies, but it also came from her experience as somebody who was triply, at least, (laughs) at least triply oppressed. And that I think gave her a particular sensitivity to the experience of what it's like to be on the outside. So tell us a little bit then of our political development. So, like I say, she she did get involved in the early Marxist movement in Poland. And then when she was forced into exile, she went to Zurich. And when she was there, she met some of the leading figures in the Second International, the Socialist International, which was really just a network of representatives of the many different socialist groups in the in the in the nations that globally many 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 different nations so when she was in zurich she would have met some of the you know leading activists and and thinkers and she started to make a name for herself and she also in that time built a polish organization in exile with other Poles in exile. And she continued to be involved in that organization for the rest of her life. But she, and she also got a university education, though, as an aside, she was absolutely scathing about academia. And you couldn't imagine a figure who was further from the model of the academic Marxist who thinks they can just sit in an ivory tower and write books and change them <laughs> that way. Um, far from it. You know, she she was a very talented scholar, no doubt. She had a great mind. But um, she saw her real education as being from the working class, in the movement, in the streets, in the factories. So she went after she, she got her PhD, she spent that time in Zurich, and then she went to Berlin because Germany had the biggest socialist organization in the international, the SPD. And just a brief aside about the terminology, that's the the German Party of Social Democracy. To us in modern day, we think of social democracy as being different from communism and different from socialism. At that time, those three terms were still interchangeable. And they often talked about the social democracy as being socialism embedded. So she joined the SPD at the turn of the century, and she became one of the leading, if not the leading, 
revolutionary representatives within that group, which as it grew, and we can talk more about the SPD, but as it grew, there did develop very clear groups and tendencies. And she was one of the most, uh, the strongest revolutionary forces. Also, just along the way, she was still, of course, organizing in the Polish group. And she was also heavily connected to and involved with the Russians and the, the Bolsheviks, as they would become. And in close communication and comradely discussion and sometimes debate with Lenin. So she was an internationalist. I think that's, that's one of the most important characteristics. And that only developed as her life developed. Yeah, she was involved in a number of kind of disputes, I think, with Lenin on strategy. But it seems to be very much on a kind of a, a you know, a discussion between equals. Yeah, very much so. And a lot of it, it, it's interesting and it's often hard to extricate the different threads of, of all of these debates, not the least because there are so many bad ideas about that period you know, the Bolsheviks <laughs> um, have been subject to contestation and, and, and a lot of vitriol from subsequent ruling classes, right? And, and a figure like Lenin, obviously extremely controversial and seen as the kind of bad socialist who, you know, led to Stalinism and, and, and all things evil. And Luxembourg is sometimes lumped in with that, and, but other times even you know, whether it's from the right or the left, there's a kind of construction of her as the good socialist. And so then she, you know, you need the sort of bad Lenin to bounce off against the, the, the good Luxembourg. And there's often a lot of sexism thrown in there because it's like she's sensitive and cares about nature and is kind and, and you know, Lenin's hard and brutal and masculine. And, and it's, it's just very hard to extract from those myths but the reality is that they were first and foremost comrades who shared a sense of the necessity of, of revolution and the necessity of organization and then had comradely disagreements about how to get there, but also often agreements. You know, you, they often were on the same side. They co-wrote a number of political measures you know they 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 agreed on so much al along the way so you really have to do a lot of, of kind of ideological work to turn them into lifelong foes a lot of what she said a lot of what gets quoted as her critique of lenin on organization is actually targeted it's her targeting her own organization in germany the spd who of course were not friends of, of Lenin. So that kind of notion of a top-down organizational structure, she's often targeting that at the SPD. Right, yeah. So before we, I suppose we jump into the SPD, I was just going to say like that, I think I got this from, from your book, I can't remember, I wrote, I wrote this down. It says like to describe the kind of structure of the SPD as we get into it, the right of SPD were pro-war and anti-revolution. So that, that's the party of basically the SPD that today is actually in power in Germany, a, a kind of a pro-capitalist right-wing social democracy in the modern sense. Then we had the 
SPD centre, which was anti-war and anti-revolution, which would have been, I think you would say the the centre would have been represented by Kautsky. And then we have the SPD left, which is anti-war and pro-revolution, where we find Lux, uh, Rosa uh, situated. So, and this, that description is, uh, you know, it, it's it's describing the scene as it was leading up to and during World War One, And uh, so it's a kind of a snapshot. Of course, over the period of its lifelong development, things would have looked very differently. And I think it all stems back to the important moment that is central to understanding the development of the SPD is its founding in the 1870s on the basis of what was called the Erfurt program, which was the maximum and the minimum program. And the maximum program was socialist revolution, like overthrowing capitalism and replacing it with something better, uh, you know, a socialist-led, a socialist worker-led society. And the minimum program was reforms, you know, economic and political, including, you know, minimum wage struggles and suffrage struggles and you know many many other things the the spd was born under conditions of illegality because there were there were laws on the books saying you you couldn't be a socialist it was illegal you could get locked up and so under those conditions the the kind of initial years nobody doubted that there needed to be a revolution but the party wasn't able to develop external, visible, organizational forms. When the, when the anti-socialist laws were lifted around 1890, the, the party grew, it built on everything that it had done during those early years, and it made incredible gains and achievements. And again, it's something that you can look back at and say, it's just incredible. And, you know, it was this massive organization with dozens of newspapers and youth groups and women's groups and social and cultural events as well as this serious presence in the in parliament so it had oh and unions of course social democratic affiliated unions and over a period you know from 1890 through till 1910 there was just this really quite massive steady growth until it became one of the biggest political presences in parliament in the Reichstag and in it had over a million members um, and all of this a party school you know Luxembourg taught in a in a party school for many years imagine that it's like an alternative education system for Marxists you know for workers to go and get a good Marxist education in the basics phenomenal today we have podcasts you know it's a far cry Hey, you know, you're in the tradition, you're keeping the tradition alive. Um, so I just, I want to, I stress all of that because it's very easy to kind of skip that right into the betrayal and the betrayal, which really, it, it starts in the years leading up to World War One, and then it has its biggest manifestation at the moment of World War One, where the SPD, along with most of the leadership of the international actually go from being vehemently rhetoric or at least verbally 
anti-war and anti-imperialist to lining up with their respected respective ruling classes and voting for the war and approving the war which meant sending off obviously generations of of young workers off to their to their deaths and so the, then you have this question of like how did that happen how could an organization rooted in the working class on marxist principles end up re- reversing and betraying those principles so massively um, and i think to understand that you have to look at the nature of the success of the organization particularly in parliament because and anybody who's familiar with what can happen with bureaucratic trade unions will know this right that once an oppositional body takes on institutional form and starts becoming having stakes in the system and that's what happened in the SVD people were getting elected to parliament they were mixing with the opposition they were mixing with the enemy they were getting salaries that which disconnected them from the bulk of the working class membership and this didn't happen in a cookie cutter way and it didn't happen all at one time it was a tendency over decades luxembourg saw it saw the dangers of what was happening earlier than most and that's why she wrote what became reform or revolution she was intervening in the party at a moment that she saw this tendency which if it was left unchecked would lead to reversing every single principle of marxism i think it was in the intro you said that there was something like 3 or 5000 full-time staff in the spd like those are crazy numbers like what like the labor party today wouldn't have that in the uk I, I, I would struggle to see them with more than four or five hundred people full time. I, I have no idea and I'm not very good with numbers, I must admit. I have no idea <laughs> what that looks like. But I think that it is indicative, you know, that number relative to the population and, and parliament. I, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, quite, it's quite remarkable. Yeah. OK, so now here we enter Edward Bernstein with his book, which in the West here in, in English-speaking world is known as Evolutionary Socialism. This is kind of seen as, what would we call it, the ideological masterpiece of the reformist wing. Can you tell us a little bit about this book then and how it dropped? Bernstein himself was exiled during the period of the anti-socialist laws in Germany. Um, so he has, you know, a history of credentials He's again, he's not somebody who just pops up in the sky as a reformist. Um, he starts as a revolutionary socialist. You know, he, he, he believes in the effort program. But then he does have this long period in exile in London, and he was very influenced by reform socialism. And he was, I would say, much more disconnected from the struggle than somebody like Luxembourg, who all, I mean, that's one of the constants throughout her life. Any biography that you read of her, she is never just in her study. She is in her study writing a lot, but um, she's more importantly, you know, in the factories, in the streets, in demonstrations, doing big flash speaking tours, participating in revolutions. <laughs> you know, again, first and foremost, an activist and 
that meant that she was constantly informed by the working class struggle, learning from workers involved in struggle. And that that's not the trajectory that happened with Bernstein. You know, he was further and further removed from those struggles. So he did become the kind of spokesperson for this new set of ideas, which basically said, we don't need a revolution anymore because there's way, there are ways of taming capitalism. You know, look, there haven't been any economic crises in two decades. You know, clearly the system is sorting itself out. And with the help of socialists in parliament and trade unions, we can push that more and more. And capitalists will end up being little more than bureaucratic administrators. Um, and the, the, the fundamental conflict between management and labor is going to get less and less. So, you know, his predictions didn't work out that well with the benefit of hindsight. But what Luxembourg did was she took on his arguments point by point and showed not only how he was wrong, and there's this wonderful moment, she says, well, no sooner did Bernstein predict the end of economic crises, then there was a major economic crisis. <laughs> you know, so she's, she's doing that, but she's also showing the implications of his argument. And the most important thing that she argues is that he's not showing, he's not giving us a different path to the same goal. He's changed the goal. And that was the thing that was so brilliant in terms of a recognition of what was creeping, you know, that was what was happening within the SPD was that people in parliament were getting used to the idea that actually, you know, this is the system that we're part of and we're making peace with it and we can just tweak and it'll be okay. And Luxembourg was like, no, Marxists didn't invent class struggle. There is a fundamental divide under capitalism, there is a tiny minority ruling class who own and control, and then there's a majority working class, everybody else, who has only the only thing that we have is our labor. And exploitation is, is essential to capitalism. It's baked into capitalism. And then from that springs all of these other evils. And you you can only get rid of them by by getting rid of the whole system and replacing it with something else. So it, it was slam dunk, you know, the arguments was, were just so convincing. And formally, the SPD sort of, you know, agreed. There was a sort of like, yeah, Luxembourg's right. But then that didn't stop what was actually happening on the ground, you know, that all of those tendencies continued to develop. Yeah, she made a very interesting point, which I think is completely correct, was about the idea that, like, if you were to have a Marxist party, a revolutionary Marxist party, the reformer will be kind of clothed in, in Marxist rhetoric, you know, and will consider themselves and use arguments about how in justifying their reformism through Marx's own work. And I found that a very insightful comment. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, kind of tragically, I hate to, to use that word, but, it became so clear during the German revolution when the German ruling class actually turned to the SPD to save their system, you know, and, and the, the right wing of social democracy did exactly what Luxembourg predicted, 
in that they used the language of Marxism, they used the language of class struggle, and you know, they used the reputation of some of their great leaders as advocates of workers to effectively stem the revolutionary working class movement and ultimately then you know they they turned their guns on the revolutionary workers and and killed the leaders including including luxembourg so and it's it's hard to know how the the ruling class would have done that hadn't they had they not had access to a rhetoric, you know, a, a, a party, an organization, a force that was supposedly on the side of the workers. So if they're they're telling us to drop our arms and you know make peace, then should we do that? Because they're on our side, aren't they? You would think. You would think. So in preparation for this, I did read Bernstein's Evolutionary Socialism, and it was very interesting because I found. It's not like he does not understand Marx. Like, and in, in places, he even gets things correct, I think, where Rosa Luxemburg goes wrong, probably in a, in, a, in a number of places. But overall, you know, he both uses and understands Marx, but then also, like, at the same time, will literally throw out, say, the whole concept of value theory and say, well, that's just like, you know, subjective theory of value. So he's a very sharp operator. And you know, it's he does this incredibly slippery move of making very precise Marxist points and then throwing them out and making this other point and then coming back and using it just towards making his his political point in the end. It's it's quite a well written book. Yeah, um, and I'm I'm glad that you took the time to read it and and it's important I think what you're saying is important because if you only have Luxembourg's book and description of of Bernstein it's entirely possible to have a very one-dimensional parodic version of of Bernstein as as just being you know kind of ignorant and unsubtle and it's it's a, a more it's more accurate to look at the way that Marxists in this period are debating out all sorts of positions and they're doing so it's as you say you know Bernstein wasn't saying Marx is dead he's just saying as a Marxist you know I'm updating for our present period and I think that that again remember that just about everybody in the in the socialist international were looking to the SPD because it was assumed that this was the model that was going to work, you know, and it was working. It was growing. They had massive roots in the labor movement. Um, it was making all sorts of progress. But again, I think the fact that Luxembourg was always looking to looking downward, you know, she's she's the biggest advocate of socialism from below. And in the end, Bernstein gives up on that prospect, right? He uses Marxist theory to justify it, but he's basically saying, we can do this from above. We can vote for people and they can make this happen on the behalf of the workers. And Luxembourg went to Russia to take part in the 1905 revolution. I mean, this is obviously, it's a little, it's a 
few years after she wrote the Reform or Revolution articles that would become Reform or Revolution. But that's what's informing Luxembourg. And what she sees in, in that revolution is the impact of mass numbers of workers refusing to work, you know, striking. And she's, you know, she's saying they're achieving in weeks what we wouldn't be able to achieve with parliamentary measures in years and and possibly never. So again, beyond the theoretical debates, I think is that check with what's happening on the ground. And Bernstein's point of reference is always parliament, which is a bourgeois institution. And Luxembourg is always the movement. Yeah, like she says somewhere that I think that Bernstein's work was an unconscious attempt to put like the petty bourgeois part of the of the, of the party in dominance over the proletarian part. Right. That's that's a really yeah. <laughs> she nailed it. <laughs> she does do that, yeah. Um one thing like I think that she gets very very correct, you know, that has come to be seen as a left communist kind of deviation was that the right at the beginning of the book I was very impressed that she she talked about the suppression of wage labor like that you know if we look to Marx's critique in the Gotha program and you know my my favorite book at the moment is this book by one of the uh, a Dutch left communists called the the fundamental principles of communist production and distribution I don't know if you have read it it's like the greatest economics it's the greatest communist economic stuff outside of capital I, I know of it, but I must admit, I've never sat down and read it. It's <laughs> only about 200, 300 pages. It's really, it's actually not a, a hard read. It's just fascinating. But what, what he's always smashing is about the suppression of wage labor. The kind of idea of Marx is in the critique of the Gotha program that it should be, people should be paid for the amount of hours they work, you know, a labor time calculation. And it's like that, that has been kind of completely lost from the communist left, you know, after the Russian Revolution. And there's, it doesn't hardly exist only in like, you know, weird podcasts like mine now. And I was very like it, when I read that, I could see that Rosa was very much a part of the left radical Marxist revolutionary stuff. It stands out above all of this reformist. Uh, we can get a little bit of a higher wage here that she had at the core, the, the kind of understanding of destruction of the exploitation from the new society, which, you know, doesn't exist at all in that in the evolutionary socialism of Bernstein. You do not hear any of that. Right. Yeah. And, and that, I mean, it's, it's um, connected to what amounts to a theory of the state too, because, and I, you know, she, she talks us through this in Reform or Revolution that she says Bernstein has got it wrong because he sees he, he's reversed reform or revolution. He thinks that reform can supplant revolution because it can change capitalism sufficiently and change it into socialism. So in fact, reforms are limited by the previous revolution. The previous revolution was a bourgeois revolution and it set up a state and an economy and, and, and a political system, you know, all of those things aren't neutral. They're not just things like, well, workers can use them or, or bosses can, can use them. They're all set up by the owning class. And what that means is that what's 
the reforms that are possible within the capitalist system are going to be delimited. And for example, there is no way under capitalism to outlaw class exploitation. You can, you can change the terms of that exploitation. You can, you can have OSHA, you can have minimum wages, you can have you know, labor reforms around child labor. You can have great union contracts that say that you need to get paid more. You, you can have equality laws that say women have to be paid this, the same as men. I mean, they'll even just go through that list and you think, yeah, but we haven't got any of those things currently, right? Because they're all things that have been won and then clawed back and won and clawed back. And that will continue to be the case under capitalism. But even so, you can win tremendous things, but you cannot outlaw the exploitation of labor by capital. Just like you can't, you, you, you don't have any freedom of speech in the workplace. You can't tell your boss to fuck off, right? That's, again, it's what Luxembourg takes us through so brilliantly. She says, no, the reforms of this moment are, are absolutely delimited by the terms of the revolution that, that, that we've had. So until there's a new revolution, which is a worker revolution that changes the terms, we are not going to be able to abolish or um what, what's the word we can't make it illegal for bosses to do what they do best which is exploit workers yeah she shows the difference between like a revolution is not a series of small reforms that there is a, a change in there's a difference in essence between revolution and you know this this piecemeal stuff you know it, it's a very very clear insight Okay, so let me, let's maybe go on to what the things that actual Bernstein actually argues in the book that she's going to pick apart. Okay, so one of the one of the major things that Bernstein was talked about was how capitalism was adapting itself. You know, it was learning how to stabilize, like say a shipbuilder learns that you know you need to maybe if you're carrying like a super tanker, you need to have divisions so it doesn't allow the water to all slosh from one end of the ship to the other. That capitalism was learning the structures that would need to kind of stabilize itself. Do you want to go and talk a bit about, say, what, what these things were? Yeah, I mean, the the couple of the, the big ones for the moment that he was pointing to were cartels or basically conglomerates. They're just sort of big conglomerations of, of, of capital. The ability for capitalist units to band together, become bigger and bigger, and that that defends against many of the winds of um, the storms of capitalism in the earlier period, so that that would lead to, to bigger stability. And then the extension of credit that would allow capital to continue to accumulate in new ways and for bosses to invest in new ways. And with both of them, Luxembourg talks through how in both cases they might temporarily assist individual capitalists or even kind of blocks of of capitalism but that they would not would not be able to either lessen the sharpness of exploitation for workers i mean that that's not going to make anything better for for workers and secondly that they wouldn't be able to overcome the fundamental 
contradictions and conflicts within the cap within capitalist economy itself. Um, and that on the contrary, they would actually lead to increased conflict over time, and that they were just sort of shoring up briefly in order for greater crises to come, which of course is is what happened in the, the big conflagration of World War One, which was, you know, in the end, nothing more than the consequences of capitalism that had developed and developed and developed into, into blocks that then become connected with nations that then go to war over capitalist competition. So she really works through the way that these measures seem like they are going to pacify and stabilize capitalism, but that in fact they have the opposite results. Right. And like the cartel, like as a formation in, in capitalism is to try and get your rate of profit higher by essentially stealing surplus from the other capitalists. But it's like it's not a systemic solution because not everybody can steal from each other. That's right. You know? If if Bernstein was around today, would he be a crypto bro? Would he be telling us like, you know, Bitcoin is the future, you know, it'll solve and we get rid of the central banks? I mean, it's stunning. It's stunning how obviously, you know, two, two very different eras that we're talking about and capitalism looks very different today. But it does always stun me how how much remains germane and relevant to our situation, because, I mean, your point, I don't really know anything about the question. But what I do know is that we continue to get over and over and over again, somebody comes up with an idea that's going to solve capitalism. You know, this is going to escape the tendency of capitalism to have a boom bust cycle. It's going to get us out of the problem of repetitive and ever deepening crises. It's going to get us out of the problem of war, but all within capitalism itself. And it never works because as... <laughs> As Luxembourg said, Marx didn't invent the fundamental contradictions of capitalism. He discovered them, you know, or the Marxist movement discovered them. Um, and we, we can't just kind of wish them away. She's very good also on the other, the sort of flip side of, of it. It's not capitalist responses. It's, it's uh, sort of social democratic responses, but the co-op. That one all also is so timely. I think of it every time I live in Vermont and Vermont is famously the home to Ben and Jerry's ice cream and Ben and Jerry's, you know, who anybody who doesn't know was formed as a, you know, alternative cooperative way to do business within the capitalist system. So there were all sorts of measures that you know, the owners couldn't earn more than a certain formula than the workers. And, you know, there were all sorts of ways that the company was bound by progressive values and that this was going to be a new model that other people could follow. But it just, it never works because you have one little co corporation within a, a system and that corporation is, is, is either going to go bust or it will adapt to the system and that's what happened with ben and jerry's you know unilever took them over that's right yeah yeah and you see the same with like say probably the world's greatest cooperative kind of attempt is like the mondragon in spain 
And they have all manner of capitalist forms where they have differential wages between management and workers. Like, but the differential is only nine to one as opposed to 120 or something. But it's, it's, it is still the same capitalist relations and you, you are competing under a system that's dominated by the value form. There was a very interesting point she made as well. I found very interesting about why the cooperative movement is only ever really on things like food production and distribution hubs because they are not ever the co-ops are never in, in involved in in doing hardcore industrial work because they want to escape from market realities and the only times they can escape from market realities is if like the consumer at the consumption level is basically saying i'm willing to pay a little bit extra to escape the logic of the car of the market. I find that like that's very prescient because today, like the places where co-ops exist now are, are, are literally like food cooperatives and maybe something like a childcare cooperative or something like that. But you, I've never seen a shipbuilding cooperative yeah. or, you know, or a microchip processor cooperative. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that is very, very telling. It just reminded me she has that lovely image one of the things that's very striking about Luxembourg's writing is that she's very figurative she's very poetic and and she's always finding new ways to describe things that are you know visually evocative and uh, she has that passage in Reform or Revolution where she she says you know Bernstein like the other utopian socialists um, has this endless task of sweetening the salty ocean of capitalism by pouring tiny little cups of lemonade, sweet socialist lemonade into the salty sea of capitalism. Wonderful image that just captures it so well. Yeah, it's very good. Yeah, she makes the point you said earlier about like how the, so this overwhelming thing we see in, 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 in the Bernstein work is this kind of misunderstanding of form with the kind of essence or the content you know this idea of marx has always gone on about the form and then the essence you know and that the bourgeois parliament they see is this democratic form where we can get all the things we want and we can just negotiate you know with our bourgeois enemy in the parliament and then we can have a vote and we can get it and the mistaking for this democratic form with its actual bourgeois content you know the actual true reality of it you know this is this is the heart of i think all that's left of a revolutionary marxism in the world at the moment is literally people fighting over this as still have still making the exact same argument of bernstein really we 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 just need to get into power it's just it's kind of amazing that the arguments that's what's really brilliant about the two books is that the arguments are still 100% relevant because of the the structure hasn't changed one iota. Yeah, exactly. That underlying essence, the capitalist system is still with us. So all of those things that have changed are ultimately superficial. Oh, I suppose we, we should probably talk about one bit. Like one thing that like Rosa gets wrong we should probably say is that she had the idea that capitalism could not survive without a non-capitalist hinterland to exploit so do you want to speak a little bit towards that and how this plays into the argument 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's fundamental to her argument in the accumulation of capital, which, by the way, is a brilliant. We haven't really talked much about Luxembourg's anti-imperialism, but um, one of her great contributions was to recognize the centrality of imperialism to capitalism. It's not something that's incidental or peripheral. It's not something that can be legislated or it's not a political question, not solely a political question. But capitalism creates imperialism. It needs imperialism. And it's to do with the competitive, the fundamental competition between capitalists that is is central to to capitalism itself. And, And she extended that to a recognition of the devastating impact of colonialism on on the colonized world. And accumulation of capital, if you're somebody who really loves reading economics, it's, you know, read the whole thing. (laughs) Even if you're not though, read the end books where she talks about colonialism and it's some of the most insightful and inciting in, in, what's the word? devastating critiques of empire and the hypocrisy of colonialism that you'll read and it's it's also still very relevant but in accumulation of capital she also argues that yes capitalism needs an outside of itself so areas that are not capitalist that it can expand into in order to expand the accumulation process and of course you know at the moment that she was living capitalism was doing that there were areas of the globe that were still non-capitalist and the capitalist powers were gobbling them up. The scramble for Africa and the whole sequence of devastating colonial conquest, which was about freeing up land and labor and integrating them into the capitalist system. So systematic dispossession. So it was absolutely accurate and descriptive. And and Luxembourg recognized how important that was in a way that that not many other people were. And, you know, it's it's close to what Lenin does in in his analysis of imperialism and close to what Bukharin does. But, you know, she kind of does it first. (laughs) And also, as I said, there's an exceptional recognition of the human cost. and And she looks from the perspective of the colonized so, but at the same time, yeah, there are aspects, as as with all of those Marxist thinkers of the turn of the century, there were elements of their arguments that remain very accurate, and there are others that are proven to be wrong. And one of the things that's just wrong in her argument is that capitalism needs that outside, because you look at the world today, and it is capitalist. There, there aren't those huge pockets of territory that have remained free of the influence of, of capitalism. And yet capitalism continues to thrive. There's There are all sorts of rich debates about why that is. And, you know, there's this whole, the whole idea that capitalism kind of creates its own new outsides constantly through, and, and it's always kind of colonizing new land in that it's privatizing it, it privatizes previously public areas of the economy. It, it, you know, and there is still obviously an imperialist process, which is literally about taking the resources from the earth and bringing new labor forces in. But it's not in the kind of absolute sense that that Luxembourg described. 
I don't think that it, so, and I, so you kind of bracket that off and say, well, that turned out not to be the case. And as I say, there were kind of rich debates about how that plays out in terms of the economics. But for me, it doesn't at all undermine the kind of veracity of, of what she's saying about imperialism and its centrality to capitalism and the interdependence of both. That imperialism's baked into capitalism, you can't legislate it away. And that it's only global working class struggle that can halt imperialism. Right, yeah. Like, And <clears throat> there's a quote here you have in the introduction. I think I'll read it just to kind of juxtapose it towards the type of politics of Edward Bernstein you have here. He's talking about colonialism. He says, we must get away from the utopian notion of simply abandoning the colonies. The ultimate consequence of such a view would be to give the United States back to the Indians. The colonies are there. We must come to terms with that. Socialists too should acknowledge the need for civilised peoples to act somewhat like guardians of the uncivilised. LaSalle and Marx recognise this. Our economics are based in large measure on the extraction from the colonies of products that the native peoples had no idea how to use. Like, you know... I met some quite rather racist Australians a few years ago, and they're the kind of arguments they make about like why the Aborigine, original people of Australia don't shouldn't have access to the land, or why it was okay for the take them. Like they're literally like settler colonial right wing talking points. You know, that's a hell of a. It's kind of it. It, it speaks somewhat to the kind of amazing opposites that the SPD had come to inhabit, that you can have major figures talk like that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm, I'm really glad that you read that quote, because that's the point at which, and at, at the moment, and I think this speaks to the recurrence of various forms of socialism from above that we're seeing currently, that you referenced earlier, uh, whether it's apologizing for Stalinism, which some people still do, you know, and continue to see really kind of brutal anti-democratic regimes like China as being somehow socialist or an alternative to global capitalism. You know, you have that on the one hand, which <laughs> Luxembourg preceded Stalinism, but everything that she says and represents is against ever giving socialist colors to reactionary regimes. Um, she was always, you know, always looked to the the people, not the the rule, not the regimes. So she would n never have. I mean, Stalin would have killed her if the precursors to the didn't kill her first. Yeah, okay. but um, so there's that, and then there's also all sorts of returns to the idea of socialism from below that yeah you can just you can just elect you can just elect socialism and skip out skip the stages of organization and strikes and demonstrations and worker led movements and when you look and and there is as part of that resurgence there 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 have been attempts to rehabilitate kautsky who began as Luxembourg's ally and was increasingly increasingly moved towards the right of the party to the extent that he joined in on the vote for the war credits. And he and Luxembourg broke heavily. 
when you read the, you know, the quote you just read and you see the kind of naked racism and colonialism of the right wing of the party, for me, it's like, how can you want to rehabilitate that? You know, you, you look at the SPD and the tremendous accomplishments that came from its mass membership and the best of its revolutionary leadership. And then the worst of it was its conservative right wing wing, right wing body that increasingly made peace with a horrendous system to the extent of defending imperialism and re repeating that kind of colonialist ideology that, again, Luxembourg had no truck with at all. There's another thing that she points to in the book, which to me is always like alarm bells, alarm bells ringing. When, when a Marxist or a revolutionary talks about distribution, about solving like the problems of capitalism with distribution as opposed to the relations within production and ownership relations. And, you know, the one thing I really liked about the book is that she's constantly looking at the contradictions and she, she, she pulls at the contradictions. And I, I think for any Marxist today, like from reading Marx or from reading the best Marxists, like that's something that we should hope to try and emulate is this idea of looking at the obvious contradictions within the society and pulling at them to understand what are the likely destinations of these contradictions as they as they play out yeah I, I mean she's she was a brilliant dialectical thinker and that's you know that is basically what you're describing isn't it that she was able to hold together contradiction which is the most challenging thing to do and it's also cutting against everything that surrounds us because we live in a very binary dominated society where everything is very clear cut um, and they're, they're, you can't possibly hold two things together at the same time and she does that consistently she does that also with um, her cultural writing which is something that I've been exploring for quite a few years now is because she wrote quite extensively on culture and literature, the arts. She does this in her economic and social and political economic writing. She's refer she refers to creative literature a lot. But she also had quite a few articles and, and books that really just talked about culture. And, and you can see that dialecticism playing out there because she holds together the fact that all under capitalism, all culture, all art is, of course, subject to and the product of the horrors of capitalism. You know, there is no such thing as a free democratic art. It's, it's all bound up with the, with, with the profit motive. At the same time, culture and the arts is a space where you see all of the contradictions of our society that are often disguised laid out into the open and often in a way that questions those certainties. Um, so again, there, I think she, it's just a brilliant ability to hold together two seemingly opposed realities. Uh, and that, that runs throughout, I think, her life's work. I, I find kind of intriguing reading, say, people like Rosa and Bernstein, is that there seems like at the time there was a lot of kind of debate about like what exactly were Marxist theories 
I think they seem, even the prominent people, I think, seem to have kind of misunderstood them in places like Rosa, for example. It seems from both, from the Bernstein book anyway, seems to have had this idea that capitalism would automatically make the workers poorer. While like from Marx, you know, you have the idea of the va- the value of uh, your labor power. So like for Marx, like would have made the case that, you know, you can increase your true struggle, you can get better wages. So you're, it's not necessarily immiseration that capital leads to. And also, I, I don't know if this is a fair comment, but like, and I, I suppose it's quite understandable given the time when you had all these capitalist forces with you know the militarism and war on the horizon all this there was a kind of a collapsitarianism in a lot of the left marxists like so in the in the book she does talks quite a lot about like the anarchy of capitalism and how there will be a final collapse and you know and i marx is more of a, a theorist of cyclical crisis that are created by the social relations so I don't know if if you want to kind of say anything about whatever the hell it is I've just said, but I I I I feel like that there is. I, I was quite I was quite I was you know these people are so close to the actual the actual people who did the actual work you know Engels and Marx and there's still I feel like quite a lot of I don't know if confusion is the right word but it's just kind of fascinating to see. Well, yeah, there are several threads there. One thing about the collapsarian or you know that that kind of notion of capitalism will inevitably self-destruct you know that there's an element of that you were saying in Luxembourg yes yeah like it, it she kind of talks about like final crisis or in in a way that's like that yeah and I I often well there are two two things one she she says you know it's either the choices between socialism or barbarism she emphasizes that frequently in her work and she wasn't wrong because at that moment she lived at a moment where socialism global world socialist revolution was a concrete possibility there were several major nations that were on the brink of revolution you know in russia it was a briefly successful revolution you know, the workers actually took control for, for a brief period of time before the combined armies of the rest of the capitalist world turned on them and destroyed them. And, you know, Germany was very, very close to revolution. Even after the death of Luxembourg, you know, that the revolution still had a few years where it could have gone either way. And that, that didn't happen. And what did we get? We got fascism, we got Stalinism, fascism, the Holocaust, two world wars, devastation that is unimaginable, really. It's only imaginable because we know it's in our history books and that we live in a society that's a product of that. But I'm not ever surprised to hear that sense of the coming crisis from somebody who's writing in the first two decades of the 20th century. And just like today, you know, some of our finest writers talk about the coming dissolution of our of dissolution of our globe through global climate change, which is driven by capitalism. So there is an accuracy. There is an, a, an accuracy in that. You know, we haven't yet had a successful global socialist revolution. It is still possible. This is not the only system that's possible. 
And capitalism has given us barbarism over and over again, and it's what we live through now. And I think, and, and Marx, there's a sense of that in Marx too, but he wasn't living on the brink of World War One. He wasn't writing at that moment that Luxembourg wrote in, where it was the looming sense of that imminent crisis was was much stronger. But doesn't that make sense about you know socialism or barbarism? It still is the options that that yeah, still is the option. Absolutely, but I, I kind of sometimes I get this sense that she's talking in in a kind of a in a theoretical way. As that, like that, the internal relations lead to a kind of final collapse in a kind of a Grossman kind of a way, where I think, like you know, I think it leads to you know can lead to incredible crises, but they can it can rise like the phoenix. Yeah, I think that that's certainly true. And the ability, capitalism's re- resilience in in as a system, the way that it continues to find new ways to extract profit and to to continue to exploit. I think you're absolutely right about that, that there isn't any kind of inevitable collapse of capitalism. One thing I will say, though, is that some people, one of the critiques that's leveled against Luxembourg is that she just saw capitalism as as inevitable, it was going to inevitably collapse, or or there was a sort of sense of fatalism. But that doesn't sit with the reality of her dedicating her life to building socialist organization because if you're really a fatalist right you're not going to spend every waking hour trying to build an alternative you'll just let it happen and of course she 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 did and you you don't do that if you don't think one that an alternative path is possible and two that the solution to those crises is can be found in the majority class, in the working class, and it can be realized through organized struggle. So those, I think, are the most important lessons to pull out, even though some of the description of the inevitable path of, of capitalism seems to take you in another direction. So to wrap, there's one final thing, and it's it's the reason why I actually read the uh, read the book and I bought the book was because I heard this, I heard somebody quoting something she said about say a revolutionary struggle. I'll just read the one here. She said the the socialist transformation supposes a long and stubborn struggle in the course of which the proletariat will be repulsed more than once, so that for the first time, from the viewpoint of the final outcome. It will have necessarily come to power too early. And I, I really liked that idea. I think a lot of Marxists and communists now, like, they can kind of get depressed. You know, they can look to 1917 and, and maybe LARP about it. And they, it's more like a historical kind of a thing where they get to read up about all these amazing figures who who did this thing once but our chance is gone and that's it we've blown it forever Luxembourg is really saying the opposite thing and I think it's correct that like it's true well initially for me it's like it's unlikely you're going to win the first time you know and second of all like I think I I kind of hope that the communists left I kind of feel like there's a burgeoning re-examination of strategy and tactics and you know, a look at the failures of the last 100, 150 years. And I just really, really like that quote. And I think that quote to me is like, shows the kind of, I think, the brilliance and clarity of her writing. Yeah, I agree. And it's a really good 
place to end actually because also you look at the last 100 years and we have case after case of revolutionary struggle you know all the way through till you know to Sudan at, at the moment we have seen over and over again the oppressed fighting back and in the process winning tremendous achievements and then also suffering horrible setbacks. One of the things that Luxembourg emphasized was that even in defeat, there is victory if those lessons get to be passed down to the next generation of, of fighters. And that's why it's so important to read Luxembourg today and to read from that moment of revolutions in the beginning of the 20th century and the history of revolutions since because our system you know the the guardians of our system do not want us to know that history they want us to just believe that this is as good as it gets you know it's as good as it will ever get and there's no point in struggling because it will all be co-opted um, it'll only make things worse <laughs> right yeah. i mean that's yeah. basically the message that we get over and over again and yet people defy that ordinary regular multiracial working class people defy that because it's intolerable to live in the conditions that this world gives us and that that has been a constant it will be a constant and if we want to be successful you know in the minimum and the maximum program it's our opportunity and responsibility to learn from the people who struggled before us. And because the beginning of the 20th century was that moment of incredible struggle, mass struggle, mass socialist struggle, there are so many rich lessons to be pulled. And we have, you know, Luxembourg was murdered by the right wing, but they couldn't murder her ideas. And we have her books. So people should read and engage and um, always remember that lesson that people will always fight back. Well, on that note, Helen, thanks very much for coming on the show today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for the conversation, Tom. Actually, I was going to do a plug, if you can do it, for the complete works of Rosa Luxemburg that Verso's doing. It's kind of an epic project. Yeah, well, it's a very exciting project that's being led by Peter Yudis and the board of the complete works of Rosa Luxemburg, but Verso is publishing the complete works of Rosa Luxemburg in English. And um, it's the first time that we've had anything like this until recently, most of Luxemburg's work was not available in English, very small percentage in fact. And this project is taking the archives in German and Polish and some other languages. And there's a team of excellent translators translating that material into English. And then there's a team of editors who are turning it into a succession of volumes. And I'm working with Paul LeBlanc on editing volume five. The first four volumes have already been done. Volume four is is just becoming available. The first three volumes already are, um, and volume five should be out next year. And the, it's estimated that we're going to have 17 volumes. Even if we don't get it to the whole 17, 
this is a tremendous project. And you can actually donate. If you look up Verso Complete Works of Rosa Luxemburg, there's actually a fund that you can donate to help support it. Yeah, no, because Peter has been a guest on the show previously a few years ago. I mean, definitely people should read the work. Of, you know, Peter Hudis has, has written so much about Luxembourg. He's a phenomenal encyclopedia of knowledge. So definitely people should read his work. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science, and Swampside Chats.